All right, Ezekiel chapter 25, verses 8 through 17. Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir said, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. Therefore, I will lay open the flank of Moab from the cities, from its cities on its frontier, the glory of the country, Beth Jeshemoth and Baal Meon and Kiriathim, I will give it along with the Ammonites to the people of the east as a possession, that the Ammonites may be remembered no more among the nations, and I will execute judgments upon Moab, <clears throat> then they, they will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut off from it man and beast, and I will make it desolate from Teman even to Dedan. They shall fall by the sword, and I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. And they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath, and they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines acted revengefully and took vengeance with malice of soul to destroy in never-ending enmity. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines, and I will cut off, from the, off the Carathite and destroy the rest of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. In these verses tonight, we're going to see God's promise of judgment on Moab, Edom, and Philistia. Time-wise, we won't get into Philistia, but we're dealing with Moab and Edom. Now, we learned last week how the Moabites became a nation when we saw the beginning of the Ammonites. Do you remember how the Moabites became a nation from our study last week? Anybody dare say it? It's Lot's daughters and the incest. Same thing as the Ammonites, the Moabites, that's how they began as a nation, the daughters of Lot. Now, this prophecy you see in verse 8 also includes Seir. Seir is in Edom. And verses 12 to 14 are going to deal with Edom, so we won't spend too much time on Seir. But let me just show you a couple of places real quick to show you that Seir, when it says, thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir said these things. So go with me to Genesis 32. Genesis 32, verses 1 through 3. says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. So you see that Seir is in Edom. And in a little bit, you'll see a little bit more why. Jump over to chapter 36. You're in chapter 32. Jump over to chapter 36. And look at verses 20 and 21. These are the sons of Seir. The Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishon, Azer, and Dishan, these are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. So now we see why Seir is in Edom. Seir was the name of a man who was a Horite, but that was his name, and he had a bunch of sons, and they were chiefs. Jump down to verses 29 and 30. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs of Lot, the chiefs, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief. In the land of Seir. So back here in, in Ezekiel 25, verse 8, when he says, Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir have said, and we'll get to what they said, the Moabites are a separate people. This, when he talks about Seir, it's talking about the Edomites, and we'll get to the Edomites in a little bit. Now, both Moab and Seir, though, are judged for how they treated Israel's destruction. They celebrated Israel's captivity and destruction by saying Judah is like all the other nations. And what they mean by that, in other words, they're saying they're not a special people. 
They have no privileged position before God. As you know, God had, through the nation of Israel, been revealing himself, and he was wanting, and they even were stating, which was true, that God had chosen them, and they were a special people, and he was going to do his work through them. And, of course, we know that the Messiah came through him and all that. But the nations around, when the, God decided to judge Israel and to bring them into captivity and to wipe their land clean of the people and destroy the city of Jerusalem and the temple, the reaction of the Moabites and the Edomites was, well, that shows that they're not a special people. If you remember, back when God was bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and they started sinning in the wilderness and God got angry and he told Moses, get out of the way, I'm going to kill them all and I'll start over with you. Do you remember what Moses said to God? He said, that wouldn't look good for you because what the people will say is, he was able to bring him out of Egypt, but he wasn't able to take care of him in the wilderness. And so what they were doing was they were making a statement, as you're going to see a little bit later in our study. They weren't just making a statement about the people of Judah. They were making a statement about God himself, that they weren't a special people and God wasn't able to protect them. And God says to them, because the Moabites and the Edomites said, as you see here, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. They're not special they were making a statement about the people of Israel, and they also were making a statement about God. Now, let me just chase a rabbit here for a second. This is one that we can catch, and it will taste good. God was judging Israel. Why? Why was God judging Israel? What's that? Because they were running after other gods. Because they were running after other gods. They were actually bringing those other god worship into the temple, and they were doing a lot of things that were wicked. And he had told them way, way back, if you do these things, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take you out of the land and this kind of stuff. But the Moabites and the Edomites made judgments about what God was doing. Let me say this to you. When God deals with people, be careful about assuming that you know what God is doing in someone else's life. You see, God's dealing with them because of their attitude toward what God was doing and God was saying, you have no idea what I was doing. You interpreted it one way, and that's not the deal. They're still a special people. They're still a privileged people in my eyes. But I was doing something with them and dealing with them and disciplining my own children. And you made an assumption that you knew what I was doing. Remember Job's friends? They were silent for that first week, but then they couldn't hold their tongue anymore. And the whole context and the whole major part of Job is their three friends spending all that time pontificating about what God was doing in Job's life. But if you remember at the end of the book, when God shows up, he says about those three friends, you did not say what was right about me. Now, if you did a study of everything that those guys said about God and go back and look at everything they said about God, I could show you scripturally that everything they said about who God is is true. Then why does God say what you said about me was wrong? Because even though individually those things were true and about who God is and how he may or may not work, it wasn't true about what he was doing in Job's life. And folks, let me just warn you and caution you about assuming you know why God is putting someone through a trial. The Bible does say that physical consequences come for persistent sin for Christians. Don't we know that? The Bible talks about that. There's even sins unto death. Well, God will take a Christian home early because of consistent sin. But do we know why someone like myself is going through a trial? See, the danger of, well, maybe Jim's sinning. 
Maybe God's bringing judgment on Jim. We don't know how this cancer is going to play out. I still may have this thing take my life before it's all said and done. We don't know. But can we assume that we know what God is doing? Be careful about making assumptions about what God's doing in someone else's life. All right, we're done chasing that rabbit. It tasted good to me. I don't know if it tasted good to y'all. Did it taste good to you? All right, good. So because they rejoiced over the Babylonians destroying Jerusalem, God would give them over to the Babylonians just like he would the Ammonites. Look again at verse 9. Therefore, I will lay open the flank of Moab from the cities, from its cities on the frontier, the glory. And I'm not going to rename the the cities because it hurts. And I will give it along with the Ammonites to the people of the east as a possession. That's the Babylonians. God says, I'm going to give that your land as a possession to the people of the east. And Nebuchadnezzar came in in 582, 581 B.C. and took over the land of the Moabites. Now remember, it's in 588, 586 is when the siege, final siege on Jerusalem began in 588, finished in 586. Just a few years later, Nebuchadnezzar was allowed by God to come and take over the Moabites. They rejoiced over the fact that the Jews were being taken captive. They made assumptions over what, what God was doing. They made statements about who God was. And God said, let me just tell you, um, because you did this, I'm going to allow the Babylonians to take you captive. Doesn't the Bible say that if we make judgments about people, we'll be judged in the same measure that we judge? Be careful. Be careful. Now, just like Ezekiel's prophecy against the Ammonites was not the only one, so too others, uh, God spoke through other prophets about the coming judgment on Moab. So we're going to look at a few of those judgments. Go to Jeremiah chapter 48. Now, if you were to ask me what verse, I'm going to say yes, because I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. Jeremiah gives a whole chapter to his judgment on Moab. It says, concerning Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, woe to Nebo, for it is laid waste. Kirathaim is put to shame. It's taken. The fortress is put to shame and broken down. The renown of Moab is no more. In Heshbon, they plan disaster against her. Come, let us cut her off from being a nation. You also, O madmen, shall be brought to silence. The sword shall pursue you. <clears throat> a voice, a cry from her name, desolation and great destruction. Moab is destroyed. Her little ones have made a cry. For at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping. For at the descent of Horonaim, they have heard the distressed cry of destruction. Flee, save yourselves. You will be like a juniper in the desert. For because you trusted in your works and your treasures, you also shall be taken in Chemosh. By the way, Chemosh is their false god that they burned their children to there in Moab. Chemosh shall go into exile with his priests and officials. The destroyer shall come upon every city and no city shall escape. The valley shall perish and the plain shall be destroyed as the Lord has spoken. Give wings to Moab for she would fly away. Her city shall become a desolation with no inhabitant in them. Now stick with me here. Do you remember how Ezekiel said that God was going to have the Babylonians come and take them as a possession? It's obvious that this prophecy here in Jeremiah is talking about a different type time of judgment on Moab. Because when the Babylonians came, they didn't make it so there were no inhabitants. They took over. They conquered. They lived there. The people were taken as a possession and slaves. But this destruction that we're seeing here in Jeremiah, and actually, as you'll see in a little bit when we go back to, to Ezekiel, there's also another hint. Well, actually, let me just do, do that with you. P put a finger in Jeremiah. Go back to Ezekiel 25. 
right after he says he's going to give the, their land and along with the Ammonites to the people of the east, so they'll be remembered no more among the nations. And I will execute judgments on Moab, and then they will know that I am the Lord. There's a, a hint there that another judgment is coming after that. Did you catch that? I'm going to give you as a possession to the people of the east. And then I'm going to execute judgments on you, and you'll know that I'm the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Do the people of Moab know that he's the Lord now? No. And so we see here in Jeremiah, he's talking about a different type of judgment. What I want you to understand is there was a time when the Babylonians came and possessed them in 582, uh, 581 B.C., but there is still a judgment coming on the Moabites that we will see from Scripture tonight is still yet in the future. Go to verse 10. Cursed is he who does the work of the Lord with slackness, and cursed is he who keeps back his sword from bloodshed. That's an interesting verse right there. In the midst of his judgment against Moab, God says, Oh, and by the way, whoever I use to bring judgment on Moab at this time, if they don't do it well in killing them, I'll be angry with them. Kind of like he did with King Saul when he didn't completely wipe out the Agites. Moab has been at ease from his youth, and he has settled on his dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into exile, so his taste remains in him, and his scent is not changed. Us preachers, this is a fun verse right here. In other words, what he said was this, because Moab's had it easy, they've gotten lazy, they've gotten settled. When you take something from vessel to vessel, well, let me just put it to you this way. Those of you who take medicine, some of it probably says shake before using that's what God's got to do with some of us sometimes. He's got to shake us up to get our attention and to do what he wants to do. Moab had, Moab had gotten prideful. They had gotten lazy. They, had, they, they thought that they knew better than God. And God said, I'm going to shake them before I use them. Actually, I'm going to shake them before I wipe them out. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall send to him pourers who will pour him and empty his vessel and break his jars in pieces. Then Moab shall be ashamed of Chemosh at the house of Israel, as the house of Israel was ashamed of Bethel, their confidence. How do you say we are heroes and mighty men of war? The destroyer of Moab and his cities has come up, and the choicest of his young men have gone down to slaughter, declares the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. The calamity of Moab is near at hand, and his affliction hastens swiftly. Grieve for him, all you who are around him, and all who know his name. Say how the mighty scepter is broken, the glorious staff. Come down from your glory and sit on the parched ground, O inhabitant of Debon. For the destroyer of Moab has come up against you. He has destroyed your stronghold. Stand by the way and watch, O inhabitant of Aurora. Ask him who flees and her who escapes. Say, what has happened? Moab is put to shame, for it is broken. Wail and cry. Tell it beside the Arnon that Moab is laid waste. Judgment has come upon the tableland that upon Holon and Jeza and Mephatha and Debon and Nebo and Beth Diblathame and Kiriathame and Beth Gamul and Beth Meon and Kiriath and Basra and all the cities of the land of Moab far and near. The horn of Moab is cut off and his arm is broken, declares the Lord. Make him drunk because he magnified himself against the Lord so that Moab shall wallow in his vomit and he too shall be held in derision. Was not Israel a derision to you? Was he found among thieves that whenever you spoke of him, you wagged your head? Leave the cities and dwell in the rock, O inhabitants of Moab. Be like the dove that nests in the sides of the mouth of a gorge. We have heard the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his loftiness, his pride, and his arrogance, and the haughtiness of his heart. 
I know his insolence, declares the Lord. His boasts are false. His deeds are false. Therefore, I wail for Moab. I cry out for all Moab. For the men of Kirihesheth, I mourn. By the way, who's mourning for Moab in this passage? God is. I'm going to come back to that in just a second, but keep in mind, in the midst of this judgment, God says, I wail for you. I moan for you. Look at verse 20, uh, 32. More than for Jazer, I weep for you, O vine of Sigma. Your branches passed over the sea, reached to the sea of Jazer. On your summer fruits and your grapes, the destroyer has fallen. Gladness and joy have been taken away from the fruitful land of Moab. I have made the wine cease from the wine presses. No one treads them with shouts of joy. The shouting is not the shout of joy. From the outcry at Heshbon, even to Elia, as far as Jahaz, they utter their voice. From Zoar to Horonaim and to Eglath Shelishiah, from the water, for the waters of Nimrim also have become desolate. And I will bring to an end in Moab, declares the Lord, him who offers sacrifice in the high place and makes offerings to his God. Therefore my heart moans for Moab like a flute, and my heart moans like a flute for the men of Kiriasheth. Therefore the riches they gained have perished. For every head is shaved and every beard cut off. On the hands are gashes, and around the waist is sackcloth. On all the housetops of Moab and in the squares there is nothing but lamentation. For I have broken Moab like a vessel for which no one cares, declares the Lord. How it is broken, how they wail, how Moab has turned his back in shame. So Moab has become a derision and a horror to all that are around him. For thus says the Lord, behold, one shall fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Moab. The city shall be taken and the stronghold seized. The heart of the warriors of Moab shall be in that day like the heart of a woman in her birth pains. Moab shall be destroyed and no longer a people because he magnified himself against the Lord. Do you see it? When he made his statements about Judah, he was really making his statements about God. Terror, pit, and snare are before you, O inhabitant of Moab, declares the Lord. He who flees from the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For I will bring these things upon Moab in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the shadow of Heshbon, fugitives stop without strength. For fire came out from Heshbon, flame from the house of Sihon. It has destroyed the forehead of Moab, the crown of the sons of Tumult. Woe to you, O Moab, the people of Chemosh are undone, for your sons have been taken captive and your daughters into captivity. Don't miss verse 47. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord, thus far is the judgment on Moab. Let me ask you a question. Why in the book of Jeremiah, when Jeremiah was a prophet of God to the people of Israel, remember Ezekiel's a prophet of God to the people of Israel and Judah, especially the Judah folks, who had been taken captive into Babylon. He was in Babylon when he got his call to be a prophet. And he's speaking to the exiles. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem the whole time, prophesying to the people in Jerusalem. Why in the book of Jeremiah would God take a whole chapter, if you will, for Jeremiah to prophesy to the Moabites? I'm sorry? You got it. Because just like he would send Jonah to the Ninevites, God cares for the Moabites. That's why he wails and he mourns and he weeps. Does God take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? No, the scripture is very clear. He wants them all to come to repentance and so that none would perish. Yet he gives them this opportunity because Jeremiah, many years before the judgment comes, gives this warning. Actually, Jeremiah's not the only one, and Ezekiel's not the only one. Go to Amos chapter 2. 
Amos chapter 2, look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he has burnt to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Don't let that slip by you. It's one thing to kill somebody. It's another thing to be so vengeful that you then take their bones and burn them down to dust. I mean, killing them is one thing, but then if that didn't satisfy you and you have to burn their bones, that's a vengeful attitude. So I will send fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar and amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Oh, by the way, Amos wasn't the only one that prophesied about Moab either. Go to Isaiah. Chapter 15. We're going to read starting in chapter 15, verse 1, and we're going to go into chapter 16. There's something pretty cool here in Isaiah's prophecy I don't want you to miss. It says an oracle concerning Moab. Because our of Moab is laid waste in, in a night, Moab is undone. Because care of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. He has gone up to the temple to Debon, to the high places to weep over Nebo and over Mediba and over Moab. Wails on every head is baldness, every beard is shorn. Again, that's the way they would show their grief. In the streets they wear sackcloth, on the house housetops and in the squares everyone wails and melts in tears. Heshbon and Elia cry out, their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud, his soul trembles. My heart cries out for Moab, her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Egleth Shelishiah. For at the ascent of Luhith they go up weeping, on the road to Horonaim they raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are desolation, the grass is withered, the vegetation falls or fails, and the greenery is no more. Therefore the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up they carry away over the brook of the willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab, her wailing reaches to Eglaim, her wailing reaches to Beer Elim. For the waters of Debon are full of blood, for I will bring upon Debon even more a lion for those of Moab who escape. For the remnant of the land. <coughs> Excuse me. Keep reading in chapter 16. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. We're going to come back to that verse. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. By the way, the Arnon River is what it's talking about. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night in the height of the noon. Shelter the outcast, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcast of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer when the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased. And he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love. And on it will sit faithfulness in the tent of David. One who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Now we have heard the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he's not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kiriaseth. For the fields of Heshbon languish in the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazer and strayed to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore, I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elea. For over your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased. And joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field. Do you realize God's weeping again in, in Isaiah's prophecy? 
And joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field, and in the vineyards no songs are sung, no cheers are raised, no treader treads out the wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting, therefore in my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab, and my inmost self for Kiriasheth. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. Now this is the word that what the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past, and I'll come back to that in a second. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, In three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt, in spite of all his great multitude, and those who remain will be very few and feeble. Now, we got to deal real quickly with verse 13. This is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. A better translation, because that reads like, well, all what I just said is all stuff that have, has happened in the past. That's not what he's talking about. In other words, this... What I just said to you is what God said about Moab earlier. This is all a prophecy that God gave earlier. Doesn't mean it's going to happen then. It's going to happen in the future. But this is something God gave a prophecy earlier. But I'm going to give you a new one now, he says in verse 14. The Lord has spoken in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude, and those who remain will be very few and feeble. Do you see there's a difference here? He's talking about a judgment with the Assyrians, how the Assyrians were going to deal with Moab and there was going to be a consequence in the near future. But this long prophecy that he spoke of earlier actually deals with a still yet future judgment. You want proof? Go back to chapter 16. It says, send the lamb to the ruler of the land. By the way, we hear that word lamb and we think Jesus. Yes, but not yet. It says, said the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. So where's the lamb supposed to end up? In Mount Zion. Where's Mount Zion? In Jerusalem. Again, I wish I could say, well, I'm going to probably say it every week. I want you to grasp how the scripture all just ties together. Anything you read most likely has already been said somewhere else. And there's something here if we'll dig and we'll do some research. Go to 2 Kings chapter 3. Now, some of you have a New King James translation in front of you, and it says, send the tribute lamb. Correct? Does yours say that? Lamb in chapter 16, verse 1. Um, it's not plural. It's not plural in the original text. But they're, they're, they're doing that because of where I'm going to show you. Go to 2 Kings chapter 3. And those of you that have a translation that says tribute lamb, most likely the word tribute's in italics. It's in italics, isn't it? Because that word's not there either. Again, the translators are trying to give you a picture of something that I'm going to take you to here in 2 Kings chapter 3. Look at verses 4 through 6. It says, Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel, this is the northern kingdom, 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mistreated all of Israel. So back when Ahab, or Ahaz, Ahab, Ahaz was king of the northern kingdom of Israel, Mo, the king of Moab had to give 100,000 lambs as tribute. Because he was a sheep shearer, he had to give 100,000 lambs as a tribute every year to the king of Israel to have peace. And when Ahaz dies, he stops doing it, and a war breaks out between Israel and Moab. 
Now, God prophesying through Isaiah is hinting at that. And he says, send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter. In other words, send another tribute lamb to Jerusalem. At the end of the tribulation period, if you remember, God's going to bring a judgment on Moab and wipe their land clear. Yet, what did we read in Jeremiah chapter 48, verse 7? Sorry, 48, 47. And the, during the millennial kingdom, he'll restore the fortunes of Moab. Don't miss this. Here in chapter 16, I believe there's a hint at the fact that the Moabites, the ones who remain, are going to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes and sets up his kingdom. And look at what God says to the people of Israel in verses 2 and following. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon, shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive. In other words, when the Moabites who are running to God for protection when this judgment comes, when they understand that Jesus is king, when this is all happening on the globe and the Mo certain Moabites decide to run for their lives, the Jews are told, don't point them out. Hide them. And then look at what it says here. Verse 4, let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer when the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Who's this? That's Jesus. Listen to me. Where Moab is, is where Jordan is today. The Ammonites, remember, is also where Jordan is. And where Moab was is where Jordan's property extends. We won't have time to get there tonight, but when we get to those certain chapters that talk in Ezekiel about the millennial kingdom and the distribution of the land to all the people of Israel, and we look at where they're going to get their property, it's not going to be in the exact same places that they had earlier when they were first brought into the the land of Israel, and God gave them their land then. When, during the millennial kingdom, they're going to be given different places, and actually the Jews are going to be inhabiting all that God promised them. They've never fully been able to get all that God promised them. Even in the time of David and Solomon, they didn't fully get all the land that God had promised Abraham. And so when you do a study, which we'll do later, and take a look at the actual boundaries of what the land of Israel, where the, in the land of Israel they were promised to get the land, it's going to include what is now Lebanon. It's going to include parts of Syria. It's going to include Jordan and even into Saudi Arabia. And interestingly enough, as you look and do a study, you'll notice that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah are all prophesying not only to the people of Israel, but also prophesying to those same nations that were right around Israel. Edom, Moab, Ammon. Philistia, Egypt. It's obvious that in some way in the future, now the exact timing of this, I don't know. I lean toward the end of the tribulation period, but there is in Psalm 83 a hint that maybe possibly the judgment of these nations will happen prior to the end of the tribulation period. Because if you do a study of Psalm 83, which we won't have time to get to tonight, these nations 
are talked about in Psalm 83 of being destroyed. Oh, listen. And then in, when we get to Ezekiel 38 and 39, when Gog and Magog come to attack Israel, those nations that are right now enemies of Israel, they're on their border, Lebanon and, and Jordan, and the, the ones that are right there on the border, Syria, they're not listed in that group that comes with the northern kingdom and Iran and Turkey and all them against Israel. Those nations that are right now on their border who are enemies of Israel aren't listed in the group coming to attack Israel. And actually at that time, Israel's living at peace with unwalled villages. So there's a chance that all these prophecies of judgment on these nations might happen prior to the tribulation period or at some point during it. We don't know. But God is going to judge the nations that are right now on the border, borders of Israel. But at the end, when those nations turn to him and they flee, Israel is to protect them because Jesus is going to come and set up his kingdom. And oh, by the way, his kingdom is not just going to be in that little piece of land that they have now. It's going to be over all that area. And it's going to be in the area of Moab because God's going to, hey, he already gave it to Israel. <clears throat> his throne is going to be in righteousness, we see. Now, when Ezekiel says, back in chapter 25, go back to chapter 25, when Ezekiel says that the Moabites and the Ammonites will be remembered no more among the nations, he's not saying that there will never again be a Moabite or an Ammonite, because that doesn't match up with the whole of Scripture, but that these nations would be absorbed by the surrounding Arab nations as they are today. Let me ask you a question. Does anybody know an Ammonite? Does anybody know a Moabite? Does anybody know an Edomite? It's interesting. Does anybody know any Jews? Isn't that crazy? The Israelites still exist as a people, and even miraculously in their land. They were out of it for almost 2,000 years. They were out of it during Babylonian captivity for 70 years. God allowed them back in, but they didn't have full control of their land. They always been in someone's thumb. But then because of the rejection of the Messiah, they were scattered again to all the nations, like the scripture said. And he's brought them back so he could set up his final days. But how do the people of Israel exist when all the nations of the earth have been trying over time to wipe them off the face of the earth? But God said, I'm going to make the people of Ammon and the people of Moab and the Edomites remembered no more as a people. They've just been absorbed into all the other Arab peoples. But I believe scripturally there will be somehow still an Ammonite or a Moabite and God keeps track and he knows who they are because those people, are, their fortunes are going to be restored in the millennial kingdom. By the way, you all might not remember this, but Ruth was a Moabite. So we know Ruth's going to be in the eternal kingdom, right? So to say there'll be no longer any more Moabites, you know, that's not what the scripture's saying. And also, again, remind you of Jeremiah 48, 47, where he says, and I'll restore the fortunes of the Moabites. In Jeremiah 49, verse 6, I'll restore the fortunes of the Ammonites. Now, next in our passage here in Ezekiel 25, in verses 12 through 14, Ezekiel prophesies about Edom's judgment. Now, let me remind you, go to chapter 36 of Genesis. Edom was Esau's descendants. Jeremiah, I'm mean, sorry, Genesis 36, verses, verse 1, and then we're going to jump to verses 6 through 8. Genesis 36... Verse 1 says, these are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Jump down to verse 6. 
when Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan, he went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. And then it says again, Esau is Edom. So the Edomites come from who? Esau, the twin brother of Jacob. Keep that in mind, because as you remember, they fought each other in the womb, didn't they? They wrestled with each other in the womb. And God chose to have Jacob be the one he reveals himself to and make the people of Israel from, and the Messiah come from his lineage. He chose not to work through Esau. He chose because that's how God gets to do it. He gets to be God. And he chose Jacob over Esau. And Esau never liked it. And he had an attitude of resentment and vengeance toward his brother all through the history. As you remember, there was a point we read where actually Esau's coming to kill his brother. A lovely thing. Edom was being judged for many wrongs, as you're going to see. But Ezekiel speaks of their taking vengeance on Israel. You see, the Edomites not only rejoiced when the Babylonians attacked and destroyed Jerusalem, you may or may not know this, but they killed many who tried to escape to their land. When the Babylonians were coming to attack Jerusalem and the people were trying to get away, some of them ran to Edom. And the Edomites didn't hide them like we just saw that the Jews are supposed to do for the Moabites. The Edomites put them to death as they ran. Go to Psalm 137. Psalm 137. says, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion on the willows there. We hung up our lyres for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So here we see this psalm is written about the time in captivity in Babylon at the time of Nebuchadnezzar's attack at Jerusalem. And they wanted us to sing some of those old songs of Zion. They mocked them and they said we couldn't sing. We hung up our lyres on the trees. How shall we sing? The Lord's song in a foreign land. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Isn't that an interesting psalm? Wouldn't that be a fun one to sing at church? But what was the attitude of the Edomites when God used Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem? What did the Edomites say? Lay it bare. Lay it bare. They watched as this went on and celebrated, cheered on the Babylonians. And then if anybody tried to escape from there to their land, they killed them. God kept track. Go to Lamentations chapter 4. If you're not sure where Lamentations is, you know where the book of Jeremiah is. We've been there a bunch. It's right after the book of Jeremiah because Jeremiah wrote Lamentations as well. One of his most cheerful books. Chapter 4, look at verses 21 and 22 of chapter 4. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. 
But to you also the cup shall pass. Now it doesn't mean pass, meaning you won't drink it. You remember last week we were together and we saw that God told the prophet, I'm going to give you the cup of my wrath and you hand it to whoever I tell you. And he gave it to the Jews first and then from there to all these other nations, ultimately ending with Babylon. This is what it's talking about. To you also the cup of my wrath shall pass and you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish he will uncover your sins. Go to Amos chapter 1. Now some of you are probably getting a little weary of all these scriptures. Last night at dinner time, I turned to my daughter Nicole and I said, because we were heading to Bible study right after dinner, I said, oh, by the way, Nicole, get ready. I got a lot of scriptures tonight. And she kind of pridefully said to me, do you have at least 16? Because my daughter taught Sunday school at the college department at First Baptist Merritt Island Sunday. And she said, Dad, when I taught Sunday school to the college department, I had 16 passages of scripture. I said, hang on for a second. Let me look. And I pulled out my notes and I counted. And there were 23 passages of scripture. So she's not there quite yet. But Amos chapter 1, listen to verses 11 and 12. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword. Do you see that? Edom, Esau, chased his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Once again, Jeremiah also prophesies about these people as well. Go to Jeremiah chapter 49. Jeremiah prophesies about the Edomites. Look at verses 7 through 21. Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time when I punish him. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not at least leave gleanings? If thieves came by night, would they not destroy only enough for themselves? But I have stripped Esau bare. I have uncovered his hiding places, and he is not able to conceal himself. His children are destroyed, and his brothers and his neighbors, and he is no more. Leave your fatherless children, I will keep them alive, and your, let your widows trust in me. For thus says the Lord, if those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. For I have sworn by myself, declares the Lord, that Basra shall become a horror, a taunt, a waste, and a curse, and all her cities shall be perpetual wastes. I have heard a message from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations. Gather yourselves together and come against her, and rise up for battle. For behold, I will make you small among the nations, despised among mankind. The horror you inspire has deceived you, and the pride of your heart, you who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Edom shall become a horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its disasters, as when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, says the Lord, no man shall dwell there, no man shall sojourn in her. Behold, like a lion coming up from the jungle of the Jordan against a perennial pasture, I will suddenly make him run away from her, and I will appoint over her whomever I choose. For who is like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? Therefore hear the plan that the Lord has made against Edom, and that pur the purposes that he has formed against the inhabitants of Teman. Even the little ones of the flock shall be dragged away. Surely their folds shall be appalled at their fate. 
At the sound of their fall, the earth shall tremble. The sound of their cry shall be heard at the Red Sea. Behold, one shall mount up and fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Basra. And the heart of the warriors of Edom shall be in that day like the heart of a woman in her birth pains. I don't know if anybody's caught this yet. How did Jeremiah finish his prophecy about the Ammonites? What's the last thing he said? They'll be restored. How did Jeremiah finish his prophecy about the Moabites? What was the last thing he said? They'll be restored. What does he say about the Edomites? He does not give that promise. Now, I want you to see Israel's prophecy, I mean, Isaiah's prophecy as well. It's kind of cryptic, but it's pretty cool. Go to Isaiah 21. Just two verses, verses 11 and 12. Isaiah 21. Look at verses 11 and 12. It says, The oracle concerning Duma, that's in Edom, one is calling to me from Seir. Now we know it's for sure it's in Edom. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, Morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. Can someone stand up and give us an interpretation of this passage, please? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Isn't that kind of weird? Well, let me hopefully be used to the Lord to help you understand what's going on here. They're saying to the watchman, how far spent is the night? In other words, how much more darkness is there? At this time, when Isaiah is given this prophecy, the Assyrians are attacking Edom. And the Assyrians are making it really bad on them. And so they ask the watchman, how much longer is the night? How far is the night? What's the time of the night? In other words, how much longer till the darkness is done. The answer is, morning's coming quick, but also, what? The night. There's a hint here at the fact of this is attacked by the Assyrians. It will actually be over soon, but the Babylonians are coming right after that. So if you're going to inquire, go ahead and inquire, um, but come back again and ask again, because when the Assyrians are done, it won't be over. Do you understand? And as we know, God used the Babylonians to do, to do judgment on them as well. Now, there's even more. Go to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1. Now, this is a very, very important one because this is the last prophet that speaks in the Old Testament. This is at the end of the prophets in the Old Testament, and Malachi speaks about the Edomites. Malachi chapter 1, look at verses 1 through 5. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to the Israel by Malachi. God speaking now, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, he's talking to Israel, you say, how have you loved us? Then God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. Oh, by the way, if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry. How long? Forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And God speaking to Israel, the prophet, through the prophet Malachi, God says, I've loved you, Israel. And Israel says, well, how? We don't feel very loved. I mean, you've taken us in exile, you've allowed us back into the land, but we've had people over us all this time. And God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? 
Yet I've loved Jacob and Esau I've hated. Now, this gives a lot of people problems, but you got to stick with me here. When God says, I've loved Jacob and Esau I've hated, you will understand it better if you remember how Jesus used those same words. Did Jesus not say that you are to honor your father and mother? But he also said, whoever does not hate his father and mother cannot be my disciple. Well, does God want us to hate mom and dad? No, hate the word hate and love. But what I want you to understand is this. When God, through Jesus, we'll go on that one. That one's easier for us to grasp, and that'll help us grasp this one. When Jesus said, I want you to hate mom and dad and follow me, what he's saying is, if you have to make a choice, you choose me. You choose me. Now, he wants us to honor our parents, but we have to choose him over them, correct? Actually, there's a lot of people in the world today that have a hard time choosing Jesus over mom and dad because mom and dad raised them in ways that weren't right or it might have even raised them in a denomination that taught that they just were sprinkled as a baby and they're okay. But the scripture says that doesn't make you okay. And there are some people that will not come to faith in Christ and receive salvation and then be baptized because this may hurt mom and dad because they raised me this other way. And Jesus says, if you can't choose me over them, you can't be my disciple. When God says, Jacob I have loved and Esau has hated, he hasn't said, I hate Esau. Remember, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. But what he says is, we're not these two brothers in the womb, and I chose Jacob over Esau. Guys, you say I don't love you? I chose you. I chose you. I rejected your brother in a sense and chose you. Oh, but because of Esau's attitude from that point forward, even though God gave them opportunities for mercy and grace and repentance, there came a point where God says, because of your perpetual vengeance toward your brother, I'm going to be against you the rest of your time. You may not even know this, but Ezekiel prophesies even more about the Edomites in this own book. Go to chapter 35. You've got eight minutes left. Finish strong because I, I want you to stick with me because i got something to show you from all these passages that we've looked at. Go to Ezekiel 35. Look at verses 1 through 15. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and I will make you a desolation and a waste. I will lay your cities waste and you shall become a desolation and you shall know that I am the Lord because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity. Listen closely at the time of their final punishment. We got to stop there. Now, the Edomites definitely handed the Jews over to the Babylonians. When the Babylonians came to attack, they actually said, hey, come through our land and go right ahead and do it. But was that Israel's final punishment? It can't, couldn't have been. The Babylonian attack could not have been the final punishment because Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist comes on the scene. And what is the preaching of John the Baptist to the people of Israel? His axe is laid to the root of the tree. His winnowing fork is in his hand. In other words, judgment's coming. If you don't respond appropriately, judgment's coming upon Israel. And they, of course, were scattered in AD 70. 
Oh, he's brought them back into the land miraculously. But the scripture says that there's still going to be another time when they're going to sign a peace treaty with the Antichrist. And then they're going to find out that he's not who he said he was. They're going to find out who he really is. And they're going to have to run for their lives again. And if you remember, God's going to purify Israel in the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble. So when is the time of Israel's final punishment? The tribulation period. And somehow, some way, the people of Edom are actually going to be complicit in the Jews being attacked are judged in their final punishment. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare for you blood, and blood shall pursue you because you didn't hate bloodshed, and therefore blood shall pursue you. I'll make Mount Seir a waste and a desolation. I'll cut off from it all who come and go, and I will, I will fill its mountains with the slain on your hills and in your valleys and all your ravines. Those slain with the sword shall fall. I will make you a perpetual desolation, and your city shall not be inhabited. By the way, has that happened yet? No. Then you will know that I am the Lord, because you said these two nations, that's Israel and Judah, these two countries shall be mine, and we will take possession of them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will deal with you according to the anger and envy that you showed because of your hatred against them, and I'll make myself known among them when I judge you, and you shall know that I am the Lord." I have heard all the revilings that you uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying they are laid desolate. They are given to us to devour. And you magnified yourselves against me with your mouth and multiplied your words against me. I heard it. This, thus says the Lord God. Listen closely. While the whole earth rejoices, I will make you desolate. As you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it was desolate, so I will deal with you, and you shall be desolate, Mount Seir, and all Edom, all of it. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Folks, this is clearly a prophecy of the last days. It hasn't happened yet. Somehow, some way, at the end of the tribulation period, the Edomites and that land will be totally destroyed, and no one will inhabit it. And just like he promised restoring the fortunes of the Ammonites and the Moabites, he's not promised it for the people of Edom. Now, I have to read really fast because there's one more passage. It's Obadiah. Yeah, Jeremy, that's funny. Jeremy knows there's only one chapter in Obadiah. Actually, the whole book of Obadiah is a prophecy against Edom. But I don't want you to miss this. Listen, the vision of Obadiah, Edom will be humbled. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let us rise against her for battle. So the nations are coming against Edom now. Behold, I'll make you small among the nations. You should be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I'll bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been, been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleaning? This is sound familiar. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. 
Oh, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that your strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But don't gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off its fugitives. Do not hand over its, his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon who? All the nations. We're going to end with that tonight. Keep that in mind. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. All who, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. And they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be, loft, shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be like a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. And they shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines, and they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. As far as Zarephath and the exile of Jerusalem, who were in Sepharad, shall possess the cities to the ne of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. At the end of this prophecy, it starts giving you a picture of what I talked about earlier tonight. When the Israelites are allowed back into their land for their final fulfillment of all that God promised them, they're going to take over all the land of the people around them. But don't miss this. The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Whether you understand, and I don't fully understand, the timing of how all these prophecies against the judgment of the nations that are still clearly coming is going to take place, whether it's in a Psalm 83 war that happens prior to the tribulation or during the tribulation, or whether or not it happens at the end of the tribulation. We don't know the timing of God's judgment on these nations yet. But this much I want you to not miss, if, and I haven't given you all of them, if there is this much scripture about God's judgment on all the people of the earth and all the nations... It's going to happen. So do not fall prey to the teaching that is out there today and the attitude of the people of the world today that say, if we would all just get together, we can bring in a new world order and we can bring in peace and prosperity and things are going to get better. There are churches that are teaching that things are going to get better when the Bible says they won't. There are nations that are saying if the United States would stop being a renegade nation and just join in with all of us, all of a sudden we can just come together as one big people and we can bring in a beautiful time. The scripture says that a judgment is coming on all the nations. And it's because of his promises for his people and his promise to return his son to the earth to set up his kingdom. So again, we don't understand fully the timing but we can understand this much. If God had his prophets talk this much about the judgment that's coming at the end, it's going to happen. So between now and then, get closer to Jesus, pray for his timing for his people, and be ready for when he comes to take us because it's getting close to when the judgment's coming on the whole earth.
I love you. I'll see you in three weeks.